electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, we are following all the late-breaking developments out of Ukraine. Investors on edge as Russian troops move in. But the market holding strong, stock staging a massive comeback today. We're breaking down this turnaround. Plus, the Russian invasion putting the Fed front and center. Will policymakers rethink plans for aggressive rate hikes this year, former Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher is standing by. And we're all over the action in the energy market. Crude oil skyrocketing, but oil stocks were falling. We're breaking down that action as well straight ahead. But first, we start off with a stunning market reversal on the street stock starting the day deep in the red as investors digested Russia's full-blown invasion of Ukraine. The S&P 500 down more than 110 points at its low. And then things started to turn. Stocks rallying into the close with the S&P finishing up 1.5%. But the real standout story was in tech. The Nasdaq erasing a 3.5% drop to close out the day with a massive 3.3% gain. And the moves within tech were staggering. Woods Ark Innovation ETF soaring as names like Roku, Teladoc, DraftKings, Roblox flipped into rally mode. The IGV software ETF surging 6% to finish at the highs of the day. So as Russia declares war in Ukraine, Wall Street rallies. What do you make of this action, Guy? Yeah, I don't think it's over. I'm going to be clear with that. But again, you mentioned it. Today is really interesting. And the three things that I took away amongst the many obvious things, and I'm glad you mentioned the IGV. We don't talk about it, the software ETF. Heavy Microsoft, probably 9.5% Microsoft, Adobe, Salesforce. But that stock round or that ETF round trip, 305 or so in November, up to 448, back down to 305 today and bounce. That's a really good sign, number one. Second sign, and I'm sure everybody on the show tonight would agree, Apple literally traded down to the 200-day moving average. Close enough for government work. 150, 160, the 200-day traded down to 152 and reversed on decent volume. Great sign. And I mentioned the HYG last night. Karen mentioned it the night before. Not a big deal today. I get it. But the fact that obviously that reversed as well in the short term, all three really good things. Extraordinary. I I hear you, Guy. And if you think about the move in Apple, this was the day where we started out where it actually looked like uh, we talked about the market that's been held up by five stocks. This was the day we were actually going to see the market follow through. And in fact, really from the, uh, you know, 930, 945, you you actually hit a bottom. If you talk about that triple Q, which got all the way back to April 2021 levels, and you could actually draw a line back to even January 2021 uh, at that level, we were almost 7% off the intraday low. But to that intraday low, it was down 22.5% from the high. So absolutely bear market territory. I thought the turnaround was as much in high multiple tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what was fascinating is that, first of all, look, in a world where suddenly everyone 
today is questioning global growth differently than they did a couple days ago. Whether that's appropriate or not, that's one of the ramifications of this invasion, how we're assessing that in the context of the Fed. And we'll talk about that later on the show. But I do think uh, big cap, mega cap tech always outperforms in that environment when we actually see some question about growth. And, and look, we found a way to, to call Microsoft and certainly Google, uh, absolutely Facebook, um, valuations that people can get excited about. So a uh, very interesting day. But it was high multiple tech that actually also, you know, look at that arc, ARKK, uh, got down to April 2020 lows. That's right. So basically almost the lows of uh, not the lows, but the April move of COVID. And it was an extraordinary move. Karen, you always talk about the pendulum swinging too far. Mm -hmm. And so where are we in that pendulum swing, you think, when it comes to these higher valuation names? I guess some of them is looking like at a sales force, which has come in a lot. It's not it's not absolutely cheap. It's certainly relatively cheap to where it had been and relatively cheap compared to others. But I think I mean, maybe guys, right, maybe that 305. I am short the IGV. I didn't cover any today against that. I'm long a number of fang stocks, which did pretty well today, not as well as the high flyers that, you know, have been decimated. The the fangs haven't been hit nearly as hard. It was, you called it a stunning reversal today. It was stunning. I mean, that, the the 6.8% move is enormous. Uh, And so I, I really didn't do a lot. I felt like you know, I watched the VIX closely. It did hit up to, I don't know, 38 maybe. Pete, you probably know exactly where it was. I thought actually maybe it could go a little bit higher, but that wasn't the case. And then I'm not even sure, was it just this down 20 plus and that's it? And buyers came in. And then I don't know if there was something Biden said that people were really excited about that accelerated or if it was just the rally. I was, it was sort of off to the races and didn't really matter what Biden said. I don't know. I'm actually kind of perplexed. And I didn't do anything today. Yeah, I mean, but that's a smart thing to do if you don't know what is driving the market action. Pete, you know, we, we spoke on the halftime report earlier today, and, and the upswing was sort of in, in play, but not to the extent um, to which the markets actually rallied through the close. And so I'm wondering what your take, what happened in your view in the second part of the trading yeah. session? Well, I think it directly was what President Biden had to say and, and, and his delivery on how he said it. And I think... All you've got to do, Mel, is look at the final two hours of the day and you look at the Dow that actually went up 700 points in that final two hours. As a matter of fact, almost all the gains that we've gotten in the NASDAQ happened in those final two hours. And that coincided with about the time that uh, the president was up there giving us, uh, you know, exactly what the United States was going to do and the stance that we were going to take. And it certainly did flip very fast. I'll tell you what, Guy had his three. I got three stocks that I'll throw out at you that I thought were unbelievable turns today. One of them was NVIDIA, the other one was AMD, and the third one would be Tesla. And Tesla's been my barometer, Mel, for a while now in terms of the NASDAQ itself. And certainly all you've got to do is watch Tesla and how it's moving. Oftentimes it's moving in front of the NASDAQ and the rest of the NASDAQ seems to follow along. But that was an incredible reversal today there in that individual name, along with so many other names where we saw a lot of different reversals going on. But you're exactly right, Karen. That volatility was extraordinary. It was almost up to 38. And then here we actually closed below 30. The amazing thing is we started off the month of February at 22 and we closed yesterday, you know, close to 29. 
And here we are once again after this wild ride that we had today. We've had wild rides throughout this month of February. It's been incredible. The velocity, the volume, everything is, is, is part of it. And obviously the volatility is, is incredible. But that's the markets that we are in right now. And it seems like there are a lot of folks out there that are very, very, very short term. And if you guys think I'm being an option guy, I'm the short term guy. I think we're seeing guys out there that are absolutely day trading like I've never seen before as well. Yeah, um, the Tesla turn, by the way, was in spite of the SEC announcing an insider trading probe into Elon Musk as well as his brother. Um, So that tells you how strong that turnaround was. I mean, Guy, I'm just wondering, you know, when you heard the president, what was it about the comments in your view? Do you think it was what he said or maybe what he didn't say about what the U.S. would or would not do? No. No, politics aside, I mean, I, I don't necessarily, in my opinion, I mean, I, he probably helped to assuage some concerns, but I think it was more some of the uh, footage you're seeing out of Russia, some of the protests you're seeing by Russian citizens, and maybe that was something that the uh, market didn't expect, the fact that now Vladimir Putin's getting feedback or pushback, I should say, from his own people. I think that's a big part of it, and maybe Biden was part of it as well. To sort of echo what Pete said, I mean, NVIDIA today, absolutely. It actually traded down to that January 27th low, traded higher on the day. That's coming off an all-time high, by the way, a few months ago, 346. So maybe that was enough. And the AMD intraday move and then post-market, I think, was the announcement of a stock buyback. That was powerful as well. So I'll give some kudos to the president. I'll give more kudos, though, to the citizens of Russia. So here's the question that I have tonight, and I asked actually this, the same question in halftime report, but, but I think that the market rally into the close gives more sort of, you know, credence or maybe weight to this notion that maybe we've, we've seen a bottom in technology. Maybe we've seen the worst of it. Did we, Tim? Well, I, I think we were oversold. We've talked about investor sentiment. We've, t- we've talked about uh, some things, though, yesterday. Like, the technical picture didn't repair itself today. Uh, and it was nice to see it, you know, a close on the high after a day where we closed on the lows. But um, look, theoretically, again, uh, I think it, it's a lot easier to own, especially in a world where there, there are geopolitics. And, and while mega cap tech companies have uh, inflationary exposure, certainly on labor side, but not related to oil and gas per se directly. And, and to the extent that these are businesses that are booming in this country, and, and these are businesses that really effectively haven't been allowed in places like China and Russia, um, it's natural that they can catch a bid. And it's natural that there can be a flight to quality. Um, if you look at that triple Q, which is the NASDAQ 100 ETF, you know, it looks to me like it wants to go back to 300. And it looks to me that that's a level that, again, I, you know, wouldn't be devastating. Although from here, uh, as you can see, it's another 10 percent or so. Uh, I, I just get the sense that, you know, great move in AMD, great move in Tesla. Um, you're talking about high multiple stocks, NVIDIA. I mean, are those stocks you want to go out and buy today? I didn't come out of today's market. First of all, and I think we generally do this every night. You have big days. It's not like I'm coming in here to tell you to do anything in particular. Um, But I don't feel any better at the close tonight other than um, I'm happy to see that markets uh, didn't close on the lows again, because I think there's a lot of fear and trepidation out there. I I, I didn't do anything, uh, like I said, but it's interesting to me. Sentiment is now what's driving them, right? They all move together in an enormous way. We now we're past earnings, so we don't have anything tangible to hang on to, to to help us you know, evaluate and, and come to evaluation. So it's just all macro and sentiment right now and flow of funds. And that's sort of a game I'm not particularly good at. So uh, I'll leave it to the, to the day traders or the hourly traders to do. But um, I, to me, it didn't feel like this was the bottom. But yeah. 
Time will tell, as they say. Our next guest calls the U.S. the ultimate safe haven. Joe Zeidel is Blackstone's chief investment strategist. Joe, great to have you with us. First of all, I want to ask you, has, has your investment outlook in terms of the U.S. being the, the safe haven here, has that changed given the geopolitics? Uh, no. And, and, you know, first off, thank you for, for having me. And, you know, we want to acknowledge the human t- the humanitarian tragedy that is uh, taking place in Ukraine. But in terms of a, an economic impact or, or as we think about a, a fallout from it, you know, most of the world had already been dealing with a number of headwinds from higher input prices, from commodities and oil to coordinated central bank hikes. And our view had been that the U.S. was an island of growth because the U.S. is only one of the one of the only major economies in the world that has this cushion of six trillion dollars in stimulus that had effectively been created, you know, more or less out of thin air over the course of the last 22 months or so. And, you know, that sits on household and corporate balance sheets. And it means that the U.S. has this tremendous cushion uh, for for growth as the rest of the world faces these headwinds. So I think there are risks that we'll see, you know, higher inflationary numbers, not only from higher oil prices, but also commodities. And, and I think that presents a greater headwind to the rest of the world. We don't expect the rest of the world you know, or G7 countries or Europe to enter a recession as a result of the, the higher oil prices, but we think it will be a headwind to growth. And I think the U.S. is one of the most insulated from those headwinds. Jay-Z, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. And I don't want to ask you about the Fed because we're going to have a great conversation with Richard Fisher in a second. But I do want to ask you about uh, the Fed in the context of a housing market you're very bullish on. And if I'm going to listen to anyone, I'm going to listen to Blackstone on housing. What part of this market are, are, do you get so bold up on? You know, we had toll earnings a couple of nights ago. We've had a lot of the home builders that are essentially trading uh, at you know, multi-year lows at this point or at least through the, the lows of the crisis. And you have a case where housing conditions still uh, on the demand side for them looks very good good. Input prices are a problem. Um, what part do you want to invest in? Sure. It's a, a great question. Yeah. And when we when most people think about housing, you know, they're thinking about it two dimensionally, which is the price of a house, the median home price and rising mortgage rates. And, you know, you see median home prices hitting an all time high. You saw mortgage rates backing up the 30 year mortgage recently. It hit as high as about three point nine, three point nine, five percent. And so for most people, they look at the median home price and they look at rising mortgage rates and they think about affordability. Well, I think it's a little bit more than just that two-dimensional calculation because you also have to factor in rising wages. And so if you look at the median home prices today versus pre-COVID, if you look at how mortgage rates have backed up today versus pre-COVID, it is more expensive to buy a house and to finance it. And the monthly mortgage payment's gone up, but personal income has gone up more than the increase in the mortgage rates. So I think as we consider more uh, housing and look at housing strength, I think it's important to consider that we have strong labor markets and rising wages. And historically, housing ends up being more correlated to labor than it is to mortgage rates. So where in particular, you know, we've seen this migration to the south and to the southwest. Those housing markets remain uh, the, the hottest. And I think one of the permanent changes we'll see as a result of COVID is this greater flexibility with respect to, uh, you know, time in the office versus working from home or working from anywhere. And I think that strengthens the case to the south and southwestern parts of the United States. I think they continue to do very well. Joe, how do you factor in the impact of all of this on consumer sentiment and confidence, the sort of the, the squishier things to, to, to try and actually calculate? I mean, you can calculate the impact 
um, per household of you know, X dollars per gallon of gasoline, but the overall impact on the consumer psyche is something that's harder to grasp. I mean, this this sort of reminds me of when economists and, and market strategists were trying to calculate the exact impact of the tariffs, the financial impact, but the impact on overall confidence and business outlook was completely different and much more profound. Yeah, and you know, we've seen a hit to consumer confidence and we've seen the outlook deteriorate and, you know, there are different surveys out there, and some are more geared toward uh, income uh, or, or labor and employment markets. Others are more geared toward uh, stock market and the value of people's assets. And, and so you see a difference emerging in those surveys. Uh, my, my view and my base case is that labor markets will continue to be strong. You know, when you look at the, the shortage in, in labor markets, it's pushing wages higher. And as long as unemployment uh, is falling, and I think today we have somewhere around 1.6 open jobs for every unemployed worker, I think that ought to strengthen the, the long-term case for, for the consumer. Now, the consumer's got a lot of issues that they're facing in terms of these higher input prices, and there's a lot of different things competing uh, for, for wallet share. Uh, but I think a strong labor market can end up offsetting a lot of that. When people feel confident about their jobs, and when you look at the consumer net worth, most of that is anchored in the value of one's house. And so we continue to see home prices moving up. So overall, I'm pretty optimistic about the consumer. And I'd want to uh, at least put uh, at least have a part of my investment strategy geared toward uh, experiences, right? Consumer spending as we, as we move back towards services away from goods. Uh, I think consumers are going to choose experiences over things. And, and I think in-person experiences will be uh, a secular theme in, in the United States. Joe Zidal, always great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Jay-Z of Blackstone. Um, experiences, we were just talking about the Live Nation uh, after the bell earnings yesterday, the rally into today. Um, Guy, you always say never bet against a consumer. Um, but when the consumer opens up his or her, and I know this is sort of a, you know, we always talk about this, when you open up your quarterly statement, your 401k, et cetera, and you see the stock market is down by this much and it's continuing to go down, I mean, that has an impact. Do you remember that quarter way back when, when I think it was Restoration Hardware specifically cited the stock market declines as why people weren't buying sofas? Yeah, I, I, I wish I could tell you exactly when. Typically, I have a pretty uh, elephant uh, memory when it comes to stuff. I don't remember that, but I do remember the show. I'll say this. I think as long as the market doesn't have a precipitous sell-off, which we haven't seen, consumer spending will stay robust. And I'm with Joe on the experiences thing, which is why E was the uh, E in my hope trade Expedia, and A is the A trade in my Dawn Airbnb. And I think both <laughs> will do well. Now, Airbnb has done a round trip, but I think that's just getting sold off with the broader market. I think you're going to see a huge move in Airbnb over the next couple of months. Uh, clearly, uh, guys spend a restoration. I mean, those leather chairs behind him look, look luxurious. <laughs> and, and but but so, yeah, yes, those chairs, guy. Yes, those are the ones. So so when I think about discretionary retail, I also think that there's uh, a lot of support for both margins and the companies that we've been loving to love. And that's Lululemon. That's Nike. Uh, that's some of the other discretionary apparel names. I, I, I think you have a case where this is this is where the consumer who's got money in their pocket, uh, I think, is actually willing to spend and willing to override inflation. And I think we've seen that. And those companies that are passing this on, like those companies, are doing fine on margin. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the retail space is a lot of, you know, it didn't bounce back as hard. There's a lot of value there. Looking at like Kohl's, which has an event and is really cheap on valuation. That's really interesting to me. Those chairs, I think he took them from the Harvard Club. At, you, somehow you they arranged those. familiar. <laughs> oh. 
They yeah. do guy. look familiar. I'm going to inquire about that. Those tapestry footstools are pretty nice, too, Guy. Nice job. All right. Uh, coming up. <laughs> Speechless. More fallout of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The energy market on fire today, but energy stocks, not so much. More on that trade ahead. Plus, cybersecurity stocks ripping today. We're breaking down the big moves when fast money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the monster moves in the cybersecurity stocks today. Names like CrowdStrike, Palo Alto Networks, Fortinet, Zscaler, all ripping higher. The moves come as the U.S. braces for potential blowback from Russia to a new round of sanctions. Let's get to CNBC's senior Washington correspondent, Eamon Javers, who's got the latest. Eamon. Melissa, the U.S. government is telling American companies to prepare for the worst and be ready for any type of cyber mayhem in the days to come. Analysts have long said the point of greatest danger might be right after the U.S. imposes sanctions on Russia, which President Biden did earlier today. Now, cyber attacks are seen as one way Russia might retaliate for damaging sanctions, but cyber attacks are in part psychological. So experts say one key to dealing with them is not to overreact. The important thing to remember is that we can prepare now, uh, we can deal with these issues, uh, and we can, but ultimately we're going to be able to make it through this. There's nothing, I think, in the cyber realm that they're going to be able to throw at us that we can't handle. So what could Russian attacks look like? We simply don't know because cyber war on that scale has just never happened before. But U.S. officials believe that the Russians have long since planted cyber weapons inside American corporate and and infrastructure systems that they could detonate whenever they decide to go on offense. Another area of concern is potential Russian economic retaliation, cutting off the West from vital raw materials in an effort to cause more supply chain problems here and ramp up inflation inside the United States. That could put political pressure on the Biden administration to back off, Melissa. Uh, Didn't we get a glimpse of what this could be in terms of what what an attack would be with Colonial Pipeline, for instance? I mean, I would would imagine that it could be Colonial Pipeline times uh, whatever magnitude you choose should the Russians choose to go down that route. Absolutely. I mean, one uh, expert I talked to today said it'd be Colonial Pipeline times 100 because that was conducted by, you know, these ransomware gangs. But now you've got the situation where the Russian intelligence agencies might be involved in an attack and they have an order of magnitude greater capabilities. So if they were to do that, they could cause significant problems here in the United States. Again, the pressure is aimed at being psychological and political. The idea from the Russian side would be to put pressure on the Biden administration, to have Americans freaking out about gas supplies and other problems, uh, putting pressure on the Biden administration to back off and say, you know what, these sanctions just aren't worth it. 
Yeah. Uh, Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers. I mean, a disruption in energy here in the United States, a disruption in electricity and Internet service, all of those things could have major psychological impacts um, on the American people and and the willingness to back uh, this sort of move to defend NATO. Guy, we've seen, you know, a certain amount of reflexivity in this trade uh, over the years. Something happens, these stocks go up. Um, Does this stick this time? Yeah, reflexivity is something I have when I have, like you know, my my burrito from CMG. But that's probably another story. No, look, I think certain stuff. Look, I understand the problem with some of these names in terms of valuation. People look at Palo Alto and say, "Wait a second, at current valuation, it makes no sense." I totally get it, but I do think that's best to breed, and I do think it could take out the recent all-time highs. I'm glad you mentioned Zscalers. We got into this because the stock was up. 10% during the day. It's given that back and then some on the back of earnings they just released. And if you think Palo Alto's expensive, Zscaler, even with the seller from 375 in November, is still trading t- north of 200 times next year's numbers. Why do I bring these names up? Because you know what? There's a secular shift going on. We've been talking about it for years, and now it's absolutely in the spotlight. I think you can own Palo Alto here. And if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to say it, but I think it continues to grind higher. Pete, you like any of these names? You know, I'm right there with Guy in terms of it's really difficult, Mel, because we talk about these high valuation, no valuation stocks all the time and how difficult it is to wrap our arms around it. And we're waiting for the day where these companies actually get into some reality zone in terms of what their valuations are. That being said, I agree with Guy. I think Palo Alto's one of the very top, if not the top. I think Fortinet's another one and CrowdStrike. There's a lot of different names within the category that we're talking about here for all the right reasons. They should want to be in there and they should want to be able to attack what is a very, very critical area within the markets themselves. So cybersecurity, we all know how important it is. You brought up several different instances that we have to deal with and we will be dealing with, I think, in the future. I think we've got to have some positions on in some of these names, though, despite the fact that they are really, really difficult to say, you know what, this is a value at this point, because I'm not so sure it is. I do like that Palo Alto right there with you, Guy. All right. Speaking of cybersecurity, Kramer is sitting down with the CEO of CrowdStrike. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Coming up, inside the Fed, does Russia's war in Ukraine now change the game for a Fed liftoff? Former Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher will join us next. Plus, we're all over the after-hours action. Coinbase shares are on the move after reporting earnings. A conference call gets underway in moments. We'll bring you all the details. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Richard, thanks so much for joining us. We've been all wondering this, you know, whether or not geopolitics, whether or not the situation, the impact on oil and gas and inflation, will that all factor in to the Fed's thinking? What do you think? Probably uh, very little. Uh, obviously, what's happening in Ukraine is going to add to some supply and inflationary forces. I mean, they produce 2.3 billion tons of manganese. They're the third largest oil reserves in Europe with 30 billion tons. Mercury ore, shale gas reserves, 22 trillion cubic meters. Uh, it's got the third largest arable land, black soil land in the world. Lots of wheat, lots of commodities, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, short term, I would assume, by the way, that uh, Putin wants to exploit all that. But short term, we're going to get price pops. We're seeing it in terms of markets for commodities. Uh, and But the Fed can't do anything about that. What the Fed can do is begin to reverse course. They've made it clear they're going to do it. I think what it does, Melissa, though, is they'll be gentle. And we're going to have probably most likely this. The odds are 85 to 90 percent, a 25 base point move in March. I don't think that'll be deterred. And whatever um, President Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis is talking about, I don't think will occur. But it's the beginning of a process. They need to go in this direction. They've been hyper accommodative. I don't think this changes. Mr. Fisher, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So we have, you know, inflation number seven handle eight, maybe. I know the Fed has talked about having some room over two percent. Where do you realistically think they could get try to get down to in, let's say, a year and a half? I don't know. If you look, look you guys are better than I am at looking at earnings reports, but over 70 percent of the ones I've seen, almost 80 percent. Our CEOs and CFOs talking about the fact they're going to phase in their pricing to protect their margins, almost across the board, whether it's services or particularly goods. You don't just move overnight, as you know. You guys are great security analysts. You don't just change the ecosystem of a company in one fell swoop. You have to worry about how you protect your margins, everything from how you pace your payables, you lag them, accelerate your receipt, all the way up through CapEx inventory management, everything that goes in between. So everyone I'm listening to, and I'm sure that you are listening to, are saying pretty much the same thing. They're going to go as far as they can go. They don't want to turn off their customers. They want to protect their margins, however. Cost of labor has gotten very rich all in. So I don't think this fades at the end of the year. I think it continues on through 2023, at least for the first half. And then maybe we can get inflation down to the three, three, three and a half percent range, still pretty rich. At what point, Richard, do you think, or at any point, does the Fed actually factor this in? If we see sustained inflation, you know, they go ahead with the rate hike, uh, let's say 25 basis points for argument's sake, slow and steady, um, but inflation remains stubbornly high and is given that extra boost because of what is going on in Ukraine. At what point does the Fed say, you know, maybe we we need to reexamine things? Well, I think they're just beginning this process. I don't think they know, to be honest with you. What they do know is they need to shift gears. That's the signal. The question is the speed with which they do it. They're going to stop expanding the balance sheet. They're going to try to figure out whether or not they should be reducing the balance sheet. You only have, you know, over almost a trillion and a half of short-term treasuries. That is one year or less maturing as of last Thursday uh, within one year. You'd have to go out longer. The Fed doesn't sell anything. You've got almost all your mortgage-backed securities 10 years or longer. They're going to have to discuss that. And all these things have to be done at once. 
That is, it has to project to the market what they've talked about, reflect it in the minutes. The signals will come out, but I don't think they're quite ready to come out yet. And we'll get more during the March meeting. But it's not just Fed funds. It's also the balance sheet. And what are they going to do with it? How can they do it? With, at what speed? There's a lot of uncertainty here, and I think that uncertainty is roiling the markets just as Ukraine is roiling the markets. The high volatility, look at what we saw today. Absolutely astonishing. I think that will continue for a while. Last quick question, Richard, and my producer is going to be screaming in my ear for this. But um, <laughs> do you think, do you think, is the Fed put dead? Did you ever think it really existed? Has it been dead for a while? I got in trouble on the committee when I told Ben Bernanke we were just adding a put uh, with QE and making it clear we'd stay there forever, which we pretty much did until, uh, you know, we tried 2013. We had the taper tantrum. So it was pretty clear it was on. I think there is one if it begins to roil the economy. But I would put it this way. And this is probably my cheap way out. <laughs> the strike price is different now, and it's not uh, quite where it was before. Yeah. I think that's what most people think. Um, Richard, great to get your thoughts, always, as, as always. Richard Fisher, former Dallas Fed president. Guy, what do you think? I, I, I love Richard Fisher. And, you know, that's the thing about him. That's him being, you know, parsing his words. So if you then read between the lines, what he'll tell you is we've made ourselves a slave to the market. We should never have been. And that Fed put that you think is there, it's not. And he's right. And Again, I love his candor in this, and I don't think the Fed put exists. You know, I've said it a hundred times. David Tepper correctly has said for years, don't fight the Fed. And he said that when they were adding liquidity and being accommodative to the system. And if you were bearish, you were fighting the Fed. Well, now, effectively, when they've changed course, if you're long-term bullish, or at least short-term, you are effectively fighting that same Federal Reserve. Yeah, agree. And Richard Fisher calls it as he sees it. And, and I believe he did. And I think one of the great things about this country is we truly do have a central bank that's independent. And this is not the case for other countries in the world. So I applaud the Fed for hanging in there. Um, I do think there was a long line of central banks around the world that have been much more aggressive against inflation than we have. And it's amazing to me how quickly we flipped on a dime. And it almost seems like it did coincide with Powell's reappointment. I mean, this is a Fed that said transitory, transitory, transitory. Then one day, you had everybody in the Fed lining up telling you not only do we have inflation, but we're concerned. And here we are. Yeah. Um, Pete? <laughs> I would agree with what Tim just said, as a matter of fact, because that's exactly right. And I, the one thing I would say is that Powell has been very clear. He's been very transparent. He's been right up in front. And he really hasn't stepped down from that. So if you're willing to listen to the Fed and don't want to fight the Fed, you have a pretty good idea of exactly what their plans are for the future. But, you know, I still think everybody wants to just try to figure things out and try to get in between everything. That's really not the right way to do it. I think Powell's been very, very clear. All right. Uh, let's take a look at this live uh, look at Washington. The White House just kicking off a press briefing following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We are monitoring this. We'll bring you any headlines that come out of it. Meantime, let's take a break. Coming up, the Palantir pumped the stock soaring today, but one analyst says it is time to pump the brakes. Why he is raising a red flag on Palantir's SPAC strategy. But first, we're all over the after-hours action. Coinbase shares in the move after reporting earnings. The company's call is now underway. The details next. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Coinbase. Shares are dropping after reporting. Kate Rooney joins us with the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Coinbase with a beat on the top and bottom line for the fourth quarter, but forecasting 
a slowdown in users and trading volume for the current quarter. That appears to be weighing on shares here after hours. The stock had initially popped about 5%. It's now down pretty much flat, but it dropped 3%. So stocks all over the place here after hours. But Coinbase benefiting from Bitcoin's all-time high in the fourth quarter. It saw net income roughly quadruple from a year earlier. Easily beat estimates on revenue and EPS. Trading volume, meanwhile, jumped about 67%. Quarter over quarter. Monthly transacting users or MTUs came in at 11.4 million. But as of the current quarter, that's back down to about 10 million. Coinbase says retail MTUs and volume will be lower in Q1 compared to Q4. I spoke to CFO Alicia Haas after those numbers came out. She talked about engagement in areas aside from trading. About a third of customers, she says, were using both investment and non-investment products in the quarter. That would include things like staking, their custody business, and the Coinbase debit card. Subscription and services revenue now makes up about 7% of all the total revenue. That's up from 4% a year ago. And as far as that slower growth, she talked about the strong correlation between volatility, trading volume, and Coinbase's revenue. And because crypto prices are down, they're looking at a slower Q1. And as for the rest of the year, Coinbase gives a pretty wide range of outcomes based on what happens with crypto prices and volatility. As Haas put it, quote, the markets go up, they go down, but we're prepared to navigate through all of this because we really think this is a long-term bet and we're prepared for short-term noise. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thanks, Kate Rooney. Um, and of course, we'll bring you the any highlights as we have them. Tim, you like Coinbase. I'm long Coinbase. I, I think, first of all, the underperformance relative to Bitcoin, we talk about this, the correlations are high. It's underperformed by about 20%. Uh, you know, keys are MAU growth. I, I, you know, the fact that we see cryptocurrency fluctuations, like, yes, yeah, so we know that. Um, and, and I get what analysts had to do. I think actually the stock's performance here in the after hours, considering that that guide was very cautious, is, is a function of, I think a lot of analysts actually had downgraded going into these numbers. I don't think there's any major surprises here. I think we've done a nice job of at least highlighting where this is one of a, a couple core ways to be playing some of the digital future. And, and that's something that I believe in. By the way, we're watching shares of block. Don't think we, we've missed this. Uh, the shares are up about 27, 28 percent in the after hours on the back of their earnings. We're not exactly clear what is causing this massive pop because we did see initial decline um, after they reported the results, which did look like a beat. Um, by many metrics. Karen, I don't know what you, if you have any thoughts on this. No, I was just like you, surprised. I saw it down a little. There's Some of the metrics look good. I think cash up was flat. People maybe were enough with that. And then I don't know what this move is. So tweet us if you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it we're working Very on shortly. it. We're working on it. Uh, but meantime, just wanted to bring that to your attention. Meantime, coming up, a surge in Palantir shares jumping more than 11 percent in today's session. Our next guest thinks the company could see some trouble from its SPAC buying strategy. More on that next. Plus, oil higher as Russian soldiers move into Ukraine, but oil stocks fell. So what happened here? We're going to take a look in the options pits with an answer. Uh, the details of Fast Money Returns. Let's get another check on Block. It is still soaring up 27%. Um, the call is underway right now. As we understand, a guidance for the Cash App has been driving these gains. So the guidance is better than expected. So we are seeing that stock pop in the after-hour session. 
All right, let's get to Palantir here. A big bright spot in today's tape. The software stock topping the tape, rallying more than 13 percent. The company has been in a SPAC buying binge. According to Forbes, Palantir pumped more than $400 million into nearly two dozen SPACs in 2021. But our next guest says the strategy could come back to bite them. Tyler Radke, director and co-head of U.S. software research at Citigroup, joins us now. Tyler, great to have you with us. You've got a sell rating on Palantir, so it's clear where you stand on this. Um, and in your most recent note, you say if you back out some of these SPAC contributions, commercial growth would be would be much, much weaker. This whole thing doesn't sound good. It sounds like they're making investments in SPACs in return for contracts. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, th- there's a number of these <clears throat> contracts out there where uh, Palantir is invested often in um, you know pre-revenue companies, companies that are you know, going public via the, the SPAC route. And in those contracts, it, it, it has provisions where those customers or those companies turn around and uh, use those proceeds to buy Palantir software. So uh, there, there's a very clear line here. Um, and in fact, Palantir discloses the amount of revenue from those uh, SPAC companies. So investors can do the math. But I think the key point is it is a big growth driver for them in the commercial business. And I think um, our concern is just that that's a lower quality growth driver <clears throat> as investors, um, excuse me, evaluate the performance of the company. Just to play the other side of it, I mean, what is the risk to this strategy? I mean, you say it's lower quality growth. I mean, it's lower quality, I guess, because it's not, um, you know, they're not customers who actively want Palantir services, but they're customers who are sort of, I don't want to say coerced, but <laughs> almost like a yeah. quid pro quo going on here. What's the downside here? Why well, not? There's nothing wrong. They're disclosing everything. It's yeah. still it's revenue. What's wrong with it? Right. Well, I, I think the, the concern is if you become dependent on the SPAC market, which clearly market conditions where we're at now, you know, there's not as many new SPACs as there were over the last couple quarters. So if that becomes kind of your, your dependency on growth and the, the SPAC pooling dries up, that's that's a big issue. Obviously, the, the conflict of interest, um, you know, I think this is viewed pretty controversially by uh, investors. And then, you know, frankly, just from a uh, net income perspective, they had to take a huge write down on these SPAC investments. I think, um, you know, this past quarter, uh, their loss on a lot of these SPAC revenue uh, contracts was was greater than, um, you know, any revenue that they've actually earned. So um, from a pure mathematic perspective, it, it isn't working out well. And Obviously, um, I think these types of arrangements just don't set you up for sustainable growth, which is ultimately what uh, investors are looking for. Tyler, it's Karen. So getting to this sustainable growth issue, to the extent the the SPAC market has kind of imploded, you're going to have tons of SPACs that don't get a deal done. Right. So that's uh, and need to be dissolved or I mean, I guess they some of them will be renewed for some amount of time. But so those would end up being probably short term contracts relative to the very sticky ones that Palantir likes to have their book be stickier long term contracts. How do you think about valuing those? Yeah, I think I think that's another great point. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the, the growth drivers thus far for, for the company, I mean, they've largely been large government contracts, large corporate contracts. And so, you know, these smaller ones, I think it's, it's really hard to, to hold that on the same level. You know, it's not a, a government or a, a, you know, a large entity like a Fortune 500 company that has deep pockets, right? And so, um, you know, I think 
Our concern is just that investors are going to sign a, a lower valuation multiple uh, for a business that's kind of dependent on this funding mechanism. Tyler, this time last year, I think Palantir got caught up in the whole WSB Reddit crowd. It was a $45 stock. It looked like the sky was the limit. Probably the worst thing that happened to him. I was on that bandwagon incorrectly. But is there an argument to be made, obviously, too reliant upon the government? If they could figure out sort of mid-sized business, sort of a downscaled offering to those businesses, does Palantir make sense at a certain point? Yeah, I, I think that's an area to watch for sure. I mean, I think our concern has been it's it's been a business that has, you know, very high exposure to the government, 50, 60 percent of revenue. There's there's very few software companies out there that have that type of exposure. And, you know, this this is a, bit, a business that's been around for a while, despite the recent public listing. And, you know, they, they count only a little over 100 customers. And so, you know, our view is that a lot of customers have, have looked at the uh, the Palantir technology and, and passed on it. It doesn't mean that they, they won't ever revisit it. But I think if you if you really dig down and deep and, and understand what Palantir is, it really isn't true out of the box software. It's it's really kind of packaged custom software that that's being deployed by Palantir's engineers. And so I think that type of motion, very successful for the government. I think we're we're optimistic that Palantir can continue to grow in the government. Um, but in the enterprise, that's just not the way that software has historically worked. And so, um, you know, we're keeping an eye on the total customer number. But mm-hmm. the fact that that number is kind of being polluted by these SPAC deals, um, you know, we just haven't really seen any signs that they're, they're turning the corner. But I think it's definitely something to watch. Tyler, great to get your thoughts. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Fascinating analysis. Tyler Radke of City on Palantir. Again, accelerating on the stock. Karen, you alerted me to this. I didn't know that this was going on, to be honest. I mean, I knew they were investing in SPACs, but I didn't realize why or one of the major reasons why they would be doing it. I know it's sort of a fascinating story. It doesn't. It, 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 I mean, the markdown in the SPAC share price is temporary. They'll be able to mm-hmm. redeem at ten. So that's. But it just seems an odd way to get revenue that really shouldn't have much of a valuation. If you look at SPACs income statements and balance sheets yeah, before they merge, they're meaningless. They're, they're empty. So, There's nothing I, in them. But so Tyler's doing great work. It's a great point, and I think we're great to, to shine a light on it. I, I think the street though breaks down SPAC versus ex-SPAC. So um, those numbers came in. They were at forty-seven percent with SPAC. Uh, 27 X back. And then if you do the guide, just looking at a you know, research report here, um, the guide X back is about 22 percent. The stock was down, you know, 5 percent or so because of that. In other words, I think people see right through 22 percent. I don't think it's a big mystery as much as it is. Hey, this is disappointing. Uh, and this is a growth company that should be in, in its sweet spot right now with all the other things we're talking about going on in the world. And this isn't impressive enough. All right. Coming up, crude oil nearing a hundred dollar barrel on the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But energy stocks didn't follow suit. What's the deal? We're taking a check in the options pits next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the wild move in WTI crude oil today, hitting nearly 100 bucks a barrel this morning before giving up nearly all of its gains. Let's bring in Mike Coe. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so the WTI futures did see call options about triple, and we saw the April future hit, I think, actually just over 100. Those April 100 calls were actually the most active today. We saw about 14,600 of those trading for $3.85 a contract. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that it could exceed today's highs by at least that amount. Now, remember, 
The futures represent a thousand barrels, so they're about 10 times bigger than we typically see for equity options. So 14,600 call options is actually quite a lot. That represents 14 million plus barrels of crude oil. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Coe, uh, what'd you make of this, uh, of, of oil today, Pete, the energy equities that is? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by the movement, but I continue to be very bullish on the equities themselves, Mel. I continue to load up. I continue to see all kinds of different options out there that are buying into the future. And it's not just about Ukraine. This started over a year ago. They just continue to go, go to the upside. I'm going to continue to buy as well, and I continue to have more and more and more positions to the upside for energy. Should we be concerned about the energy companies that have exposure to Russia specifically, like a BP or Total guy? I mean, I would think a certain amount of concern, but in terms of the broader picture, I'm totally with Pete. And by the way, this is playing out the way Paul Sankey said it would, I think, two days ago, if memory serves. So short-term sell-off, but he's bullish Mm -hmm. overall. I am as well. This is long before Russia, Ukraine. The fundamentals are still in place. Supply-demand fundamentals, Tim talks about it all the time, for oil to go significantly higher than we even got today. So I still like the entire sector. He also said buy fang, sell fang. Diamond back, buy diamond back, sell fang, the tech stocks. Is it time to get rid of that trade, Tim? I don't know. Look, I I think energy is now a case where this is hardly a contrarian trade. I I think everything we're saying here, remember, Russia's 7.75 million barrels roughly on export to the rest of the world. Uh, You mentioned uh, U.S. companies. Conoco has done a great job of getting themselves out of Russia uh, about five years ago. They sold a stake in Luke Oil. BP um, still has some tie there. All right. uh, Options action tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Final trade time. Let's go around the horn. Petey. (laughs) I'm going to give you a Freeport Mac, FCX. Guy. I want to say hi to Mr. Ed Tucker. Not feeling well at home. Big fan of Fast Money. PayPal's got to bounce on this square news. Karen. Yeah, I like Kohl's. I like the consumer. I like that it's U.S.-centric. And there's possibly an event there. Tim. If you look at Lowe's, it really didn't participate. And again, we've had some earnings out of these folks, including Home Depot. Like Lowe's, like their margin, cheap to Home Depot. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money on this crazy day today in the markets. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.